Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I am Kieran Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. And Eric, at the risk of providing spoilers for some of our upcoming recaps, um, Josh Warrington was in an ebullient mood after defeating Kiko Martinez on Saturday night. And uh, he proclaimed to the surprisingly pronounced embarrassment of the disowned commentary crew. Um, I wouldn't mind a bread pudding, a cheeseburger, a pint with all these fans. That's isn't what got more embarrassed. I wouldn't mind going home and having sex with the missus because it's been about four weeks. <laughs> you know how Eric, I get it, right? I get where the guy's coming from. Like once this podcast is over, once I'm done with all the prep that we had to put into it, you know, just the, the focus, the concentration, once, once it's all done, I'm planning on having an impossible burger and a vegan dessert while watching Bob's Burgers with Alfie the cat. So I, I hear him. And, and as for the sex thing, I, I better not talk too much about that because apparently you're only supposed to boast about sex when it's with somebody else. Otherwise, <laughs> it's weird is a thing I recently learned. Just recently, huh? You've yeah. been informed. Keep that to yeah. yourself. Okay. Yeah. So uh, my first reaction to that quote from Warrington is he must be a newlywed or something if he thinks four weeks is a long time. <laughs> Seriously, four weeks, my God. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, your your version of what you have in mind after we're done here runs closer to mine. I can't do bread pudding or cheeseburgers. Uh, partially partially some choice there, but also some uh, just uh, my body won't allow some of that. Uh, I'm not a big beer drinker. Won't be having a pint. So yeah, my version would probably be something like I wouldn't mind the falafel. Some oh, roasted yeah. Brussels sprouts and a hard <laughs> cider with all these fans. Uh, and and as as for going home and having sex with the misses, well, no good can come of me speaking publicly about any of that. Uh, we have two kids. You can connect some dots and the rest okay. is Beth left to the imagination, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't relate much to the life Josh Warrington is living <laughs> or, or to his taste, really. But I do enjoy his quotes and it makes uh, for great podcast opening banter material, certainly. Yeah, and that's probably why our fan base is a lot less rabid than Josh Warrington's. It's just not quite the exciting way to, to do a post-fight thing, would it be? I'm going for a falafel and maybe a hard cider, and no one can come with me. <laughs> well, not no one. If, like, up to three people want to meet me for a cider and some Brussels sprouts, I'll right. allow it. Right, pre-selected people. Right, right. They, oh, absolutely. There's a, a a rigorous screening process to make sure that they're, uh, you know, not total mouth breathers. <laughs> exactly. All right. Coming up on this week's podcast, on which we promise there will be no more mentions whatsoever of either of our sex lives, yes. um, we will be debuting a brand new segment called Make the Match. Uh, you'll learn shortly what that's all about. Uh, we also have news to discuss surrounding the immediate boxing plans of Alexander Usyk and Vasily Lomachenko, and Eric will count down his list of the all-time top fights in the 154-pound division. Uh, and speaking of that 154-pound division, uh, several interesting in-ring results to cover this week. And we start with a U.S. debut on Showtime Championship Boxing of rising 154-pound star Tim Zhu, who faced his toughest test to date on Saturday night in Olympian Terrell Gaucher. And well, it was indeed a stern test, uh, but it was one that the son of Hall of Famer Costa Zhu passed. And passed with a lot more room to spare than the judges said. Yes. Um, more on that in a moment. Uh, early on, 
it looked like Zoo might not pass it and it might not go to the judges. Uh, as I was feeling good about my upset pick when Gachet dropped Zoo with a straight right hand two minutes into the fight, but the 27-year-old Australian got up, dusted himself off, was in total control within another round or two, and applied relentless pressure the rest of the way. Zhu nearly dropped Gachet in round five, uh, arguably a 10-8 round without a knockdown. And though the 34-year-old Gachet kept trying, kept looking to land a big counter, his punches didn't bother Zhu after the first round. After a fun 12th round and a spirited hug at the end of a tough scrap, I had Zhu winning 117-110, but the judges gave Gachet a lot more credit, scoring 116-111, 115-112, and 114-113. Uh, fortunately, all for the correct fighter, Tim Zhu, who advances to 21-0 with 15 KOs, while Gachet drops to 22-3-1 with 11 knockouts. Kieran, give me your report card on Zhu. What impressed you? What didn't impress you? And how far away is he from being able to tangle with the best fighters at 154 pounds? So the report card, offense, B plus, defense, C minus, mm. overall grade B, shows promise, room for improvement. Um, <laughs> okay. The glass half full part is the, you know, as we talked about last week, Gachet has, has lost a couple of times in his previous five fights, but it's only been to quality opponents, uh, Erickson Lubin and Erislandi Lara, and neither of them dominated him uh, the way that Zoo did down the stretch here. And another glass half full part, this is a big step up in opposition for Zoo. Yeah. Uh, and it was his US debut, and he achieved all of this, as you mentioned, after being knocked down in the first round. Uh, I liked the fact that even as he was constantly putting on the pressure, even as he was constantly in Gachet's grill, he was nonetheless patient with his punches. He was always searching for an opening to exploit rather than just throwing recklessly. He also periodically did that Muhammad Ali thing of when the referee wasn't watching, pulling Gachet's gloves out of the way so he could actually hit him on the jaw. Um, we, we talked in the preview about Zoo's body punching. I thought he was quite effective with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, once he had Cachet badly hurt in the fifth, it was, notwithstanding the, the official scorecards, pretty much all one-way traffic. I guess I would have liked to see him maybe change up the pace of his attack at times and the angle of it. It became methodical after a while. And to be honest, I think, you know, by about round eight, it felt to me as if, even if it was one-sided, that it was going the distance. Right. Um, there's no disgrace in not stopping Cachet, of course. Um it was still a, a, a very good performance. Had he been able to get a stoppage, it would have been a massive statement. Um, but he did square up an awful lot. Um, and, and I think that that sort of limited his offense a little bit. And obviously, effectively, defensively, he was still getting cracked periodically by Gachet. Um, it was just really open. Uh, and that's his own doing. It wasn't a case of him being so aggressive and throwing so many punches that he left himself open to counters. It was more just the way he was positioned, um, the way he positioned his body, the way he positioned his hands. His head movement wasn't very good. Right. I got him through on Saturday night, but that's something he's clearly going to need to adjust. Uh, is he ready for the best at 154, you ask? Not the best of the best, not yet. Not on the evidence we saw on Saturday night. If I were handling him, I mean, even though I think it was a year or so ago that I said, hey, maybe Jamel Charlo could fight uh, Tim Su, I-, I wouldn't put him in with Charlo or Brian Castaño at all. Um, probably not Erickson Lubin either. Uh, maybe, you know, if not the next fight, then the fight after. Someone like a Julian Williams or Jason mm-hmm. Rosario or Jarrett Hurd, maybe, if, if Hurd could ever make 154 anymore. Somebody who has been there, 
is apparently on the downslope, but still has skills, still has the kind of experience um, who can sort of exploit any gaps but it's the, the, the zoo might have in his armory but is still nonetheless potentially beatable that that somebody like that might be a, uh, make good sense as a next step for him um but you're the guy who tried for the big swing with the gachet upset pick and i very nearly in round one texted you to go god how many pieces are you gonna get from this <laughs> um but based on that give me your thoughts on his performance and where he goes from here and, and anything else you want to add about about how tim zoo looked in his debut in the, in the united states it was a fine performance from Gachet. This is more or less the Terrell Gachet that I was expecting to see, and mm. I thought he had a good shot at the upset because I didn't know if Zhu would respond this well if a big punch landed. Turned out he did respond well, uh, and once he did, Gachet was a little outgunned physically, and so mm. the fight played out the way it did, but I'm not left feeling like an idiot for making the upset pick. Uh, Gachet showed why he was a live dog here, and why he was certainly the all-around best opponent Zoo had faced yet. I'm not sure what more Gachet could have done. He, he was tough. Mm. He hung in there. He kept looking to land the perfect right-hand counter, but he just couldn't land it a second time. Um, and unfortunately for him, I think with this loss, he slides a little bit along that line between contender and gatekeeper. He yep. inches down toward gatekeeper with what's now his third defeat. Um, I looked up Gachet's recent purses and uh, found a report in the Australian press. Uh, this is just one report. This is unconfirmed. But it said he made $100,000 for the Jamonte Clark fight and 300000 for this one. Unfortunately... Odds are that he never makes $300,000 mm. for a single fight again after losing this one. You know, unless he thrives in the gatekeeper role and maybe bumps off a prospect or two, then maybe he could get another shot at this level. But I kind of think this was his opportunity, kind of last opportunity to jump to that next level, and it didn't go his way. As for some quick thoughts on Zoo, I'm obviously impressed with how he steadied himself mentally and physically after the knockdown. So impressed with his body punching we said going in that was his best weapon and indeed I, I i would say that was the biggest factor in him taking over the fight like you i, I worry about how straight up he stands how mm. little he moves his head he got through this fight because he was younger stronger and able to apply tons of pressure but yeah i think some improvements need to be made if he's going to get it done at the top level he's a legit contender now probably worthy of a top five ranking in the division um but he said he'll be in attendance at Charlo Castaño too, ready to call out the winner. Along the lines of what you said, I, I think this version of Tim Zhu that I saw against Gachet is a clear underdog against either Charlo or Castaño. Not like a no-hoper underdog, right. but certainly an underdog. And certainly, if like you, like you said, if I were uh, running his career, I would wait a little while before fighting guys at that level. Indeed. So your best bet from our Money Punch podcast, Gachet as a plus 650 underdog, didn't quite pan out, uh, but neither did mine, which was a plus 350 wager on Michelle Rivera to win by KO over Joseph Adorno in the lightweight co-feature. Rivera won the fight, but it was over the distance. This was much more boxing match than brawl. All three judges handed in 97-93 scorecards, uh, although interestingly, they arrived at the same final score while agreeing unanimously on only four of the 10 rounds. Anyway, Rivera moves to 23-0 with 14 KOs, while Adorno takes his first defeat. He's now 14-1-2 with 12 KOs. Uh, this is twice in a row now that Rivera's gone the distance. Is that fine 
Was this victory a positive step for him, Eric, or were you hoping to see him take more chances and give my Rivera KO bet a little more of a chance of winning? Yeah, honestly, I'm mildly disappointed that he didn't take more chances, especially over the last three rounds. You know, like the jab had done all the setup work you could possibly do. I wanted to see him step up the power punching a little, but in his defense, he, he never did appear to hurt Adorno, so maybe he doubted whether he could, and he just decided, let's play it safe and smart and get the W, and that's fine. His stock probably rises a bit just by beating an unbeaten opponent and getting mm. this Showtime exposure, but he didn't create any buzz with this one, uh, other than the debate continuing about whether he looks more like Muhammad Ali, Felix Trinidad, or Julian Jackson. That's, <laughs> that's about the only interesting conversation uh, during this fight or coming out of this fight. But, I mean, the one thing that I loved certainly was Rivera's jab. It had real pop yep. to it. That's about the only thing, though, I come away particularly impressed by. The fight wasn't memorable. Adorno had a ridiculously wide stance, mm -hmm. which should have provided Rivera with some opportunities to knock him off balance. Never happened. I don't have a ton to say about this fight. It was 10 rounds that Rivera clearly won the majority of. I gave him eight of those rounds. Yep. But I'll remember nothing about this fight in a week or two. If the goal was to keep winning and earn another Showtime date against maybe an opponent a half notch above Adorno next time, absolutely, he got it done. If the goal was to get us talking about his potential to be the fifth prince or something like that, no, not not even close to impressive enough for that. And we'll never know if he could have delivered on your best bet for you if he'd had a more knockout-minded approach, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, it's a shame you didn't make your pick for the opening bout on the three-fight card your best bet, because you nailed this one exactly, Kieran. Uh, Elvis Rodriguez versus Juan Jose Velasco. I made an atrocious prediction of Rodriguez KO8. Don't know what I was thinking. Shocking. <laughs> you made the perfect pick, Rodriguez KO7. Uh, before we get into details of the fight, this is a good spot to note the scores in our picks competition. You were up 11-9 to 9 coming into this card. You got three points for the zoo win to my zero for picking Gachet. We each got one point for Rivera. And I got two for Rodriguez, but you got the maximum five, meaning it's turning into a blowout. You now lead 20 to 12, and I most definitely do not have you right where I want you. Um, you better get a, better fucking get inside now, man. <laughs> better fucking get inside now. I can't believe that uh, here we are in March, and I am already under. That's that's more like a November kind of statement, typically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, uh, the, the pressure is on. Um <laughs> So back to the fight between the once-beaten junior welterweight prospect Rodriguez and Juan Velasco. It was close for the first three rounds or so. Then the talent of Rodriguez began to break through. He was landing the southpaw right hook, lots of body shots. And in round seven, hard as I tried to will Velasco to get through the round, <laughs> Elvis dropped him three times and earned the stoppage with about 15 seconds remaining in the round. Rodriguez is now 13-1-1 with 12 KOs. The Argentine Velasco once again gets stopped when stepping up. He's 23-3. and three. Kieran, what's your secret? How did you know exactly how this fight was going to play out? Well, I have to say, I was worried that you'd gotten to referee Gary Ritter in that seventh <laughs> round um, to make sure that Velasquez made, made it out of there. I'm not saying that how Ritter handled that round was wrong. It was actually fine. He, right. he gave Velasco every opportunity 
to prove that he could continue. But uh, when one has a vested interest somewhat in 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 uh, one fighter not making it out of the round, um, I was wondering what it was going to take for the fight to get stopped. Especially at the end there, when Velasco was down the last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. I thought he was shaking his head there. I, yes. I thought he was. He was asking for somebody other than himself to get him out of that fight. I thought, yeah, I um, and, and I thought that was probably a good opportunity for the corner to come up uh, and uh, you know wave it off. As it is, he did one of those classic. Oh, I'm trying so hard to get up. If only I'd had another second, I would have made it up. Right. Uh, crawls off the canvas, but. Um, uh, yeah, look, this was a a, a good performance by uh, Rodriguez. Once he got going, he looked. I thought early on as if he was almost trying to get a few rounds in. Um, I almost felt that he wouldn't have been too disappointed had it even gone a bit longer, you know? I mean, we forget that because he started his career 10-0 with 10 mostly early KOs, uh, he's pretty sure, actually, on experience, and and Mm. he he can do with having those extra rounds. Um, I thought he looked like he was, you know, looking to work his way and get those rounds under his belt. but in the event, ultimately, he couldn't help himself, could he? I mean, once he had sort of started to break through, he just started to dominate. And he's clearly trying to add some wrinkles to his game, but he is still primarily, I think, you know, a hard-hitting puncher trying to add some boxing He's rather than being a classic boxer puncher. Uh, and really, once he broke through, it really was, like you said, just a matter of time. That said, I, I quite like this version of, of Rodriguez. He-, he-, he does look like he's trying to add some things under Freddie Roach. He still has that power. He looks a much, much better boxer than he did when he looked honestly rather lost against Kenneth Sims Jr. that one time in the right. in the fight that was his sole to professional defeat to this point and which prompted top rank to, to drop him. This looked to me much more like a pretty decent prospect with some real promise than perhaps he'd, he'd looked like even when he was blasting through people and certainly more than he looked like against Sims. There's there's no need to rush him. 140 pounds is a tough division, especially at the higher levels, but he can continue to grow and improve and he's always going to have that power. But yeah, I feel like if I were Rodriguez, I'd probably feel a lot better about where my career is going than, than 18 months, two years ago, I think. Yeah, and by the way, credit to us for now two weeks of talking about a fighter named Elvis and not making a single lame Elvis Presley reference or right. attempt, or, or an Elvis Costello reference either. Any Elvis, we have, we've uh, done an admirable job holding off. I don't know, uh, I don't know how hard it was for you, but it was a real challenge for me, and so I have to at least pat myself on the back for uh, not having made the bad dad joke when there were certainly countless <laughs> opportunities. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was, I was in, I was trying to find a joke, and and I couldn't, and I felt as if I was in Heartbreak Hotel, oh, unable to do it. See, you, know? you ruined it, Kieran. And, and, Come on, and, you know, see, no, no, man, don't be cruel. Don't be cruel. <laughs> I'm gonna throw you in the jailhouse where you may just rock uh, for that one. All right. Enough. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of non-Showtime fights uh, in Leeds, England, earlier in the day, Saturday. Featherweight Josh Warrington, in order to earn his bread pudding and his cheeseburger and everything else, uh, reclaimed a featherweight belt and scored a much-needed win, his first in nearly two and a half years, by stopping tough veteran Kiko Martinez in seven rounds. Martinez was hurt and cut by a clash of heads in the first round, and Warrington knocked him down moments later, and the hometown fighter kept the pressure on round after round, fighting in an aggressive, entertaining style, pursuing the knockout, Martinez kept fighting back and won maybe a round or two, but bloodied and worn down. He wobbled into the ropes in the seventh. 
where Warrington unloaded about 18 unanswered punches, most of them missing, but Kiko wasn't throwing anything back, and referee Marcus McDonald stopped it at 2.12 of the round without much apparent complaint from Martinez. Martinez falls to 43-11-2, but certainly the story here is the 31-year-old Warrington, now 31-1 with eight KOs. Opinions on Twitter were mixed. Uh, The British folks seemed delighted by Warrington's performance, whereas a lot of the non-Brits were complaining about the stoppage or about Warrington's use of his head. How impressed were you, Kieran, with what Warrington showed on Saturday? Well, as a half-Brit, I'm sort of between those two poles, (laughs) really. Um, I was impressed, uh, although significantly less impressed than the DAZN commentary team, who was, they were getting pretty excited from about 10 seconds in. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, I, th- I thought his whole demeanor and approach seems different. He, he seems to have an energy and a spark um, that have been missing against Lara. And look, maybe, you know, that's a styles make fights thing. You know, Martinez is a tough, strong puncher, but he isn't the kind of guy who's going to come and put pressure on you from the beginning necessarily. And he isn't necessarily the fastest of punches. So Warrington probably figured that this was a gamble he could take early on. And, you know, he had much better leverage on his punches, really nice leverage, I thought, on on his punches. And his hands are much, much faster than Martinez's. And he was able to land beautifully clean and crisp to fire between Martinez's punches, you know, and had him on the literal and, and metaphorical back foot from, from the off. I did wonder about rounds three, in particular about round four, maybe he'd gone out a bit too fast mm. and maybe Martinez was going to get settled and get back into it. But I actually liked what Warrington did there. He, he kind of calmed himself down. He got back to boxing. He worked behind the back, the jab a little bit um, and then sort of stepped up the pace again uh, as the opportunity presented itself. Um, yeah, I, I did think it was actually basically a, a very good performance. And like you said, a much, much needed win for him. Um, yeah, look, there were head clashes. I don't think that any of it was at all deliberate, although I'm not sure that Martinez agreed with that, actually. I think, you know, that little afters at the end of the the first round was was partly as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't love the stoppage, but I didn't hate it. Uh, As you alluded to, look, if you're up against the ropes with blood pouring down your face in the other guy's backyard um, taking punches with a referee hovering right next to you, you have to punch back. Yep. You yep. have to, um, you know, and Kiko Martinez is experienced enough to know that. And the fact that he didn't, and like you said, he didn't really protest, um, suggests that probably the stoppage was was just about right. Um, so, yeah, good performance for Warrington. Yeah, I, I had planned to say a quick word about the stoppage, but you basically said exactly what I was uh, going to say on that, that, uh, you know, it, it might have been a punch or two early, but you got to punch back. You can't let, even if you're making most of those 18 or so punches miss, you got to throw something in return. And in earlier points in the fight, when Warrington had Martinez along the ropes and was flurrying, Martinez would throw something back Mm. and try to counter. And this time, nothing. So you can't blame the ref for stopping it. Um, I do want to talk about a a betting opportunity that this fight presented. Um, You know about in-game betting, or or in the case of boxing, in-fight betting. You know what that is, right, Kieran? So, yeah, yeah, there are odds makers and algorithms constantly updating some of the odds as the fight is going on. And I've had good success recently betting on a couple of underdogs in-fight when the odds makers didn't seem to be adjusting quickly enough to the fact that the pre-fight favorite was in trouble. Um, In this case... It had no, it was had nothing to do with underdogs or anything, but I found myself in a rare can't lose position. Um, in round three, 
after Martinez had been down early, was bloody, but was bombing back. It seemed more likely the fight would end in a knockout than a decision at that point in the fight. The live odds, though, had it not going the distance as a plus 190 underdog. Um, so I took a quick shot on that, on that it will not go the distance, uh, getting good money on that when it seemed like it was headed toward a knockout. After I placed the bet, 10 seconds later, they adjusted and the KO was a minus 295 favorite, Oof. and the fight going the distance was a plus 225 underdog. So I bet the same amount that it w- would go the distance. Um, when you can get plus money on both sides of a line like that, you're guaranteed a profit. Um, now, obviously, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't made the second bet. Um, but still, uh, it was nice. Every now and then you can flip uh, that saying that the house always wins. Uh, flip it flip it in your direction for a change. Um, and last thing about this fight, it provided my pick for Tweet of the Week. It's from our friend Matt Christie, the editor of Boxing mm-hmm. News. It's short and sweet. Nothing fancy, but perfectly worded. He tweeted this a few rounds into the Warrington-Martinez fight simply, imagine being chased round a little square by Kiko Martinez. That's it. That's the tweet. Just sort of a reminder to us mere mortals who don't fight for a living to put yourself in Warrington's shoes for a moment and recognize how utterly terrified or suffocated or annoyed or all of the above you'd feel if you were trapped in a small space with Kiko Martinez coming at you. A nice understated tweet of the week there by Matt. That's fantastic. I love that. Yeah, that's really the essence of, of boxing distilled. You yeah. know, it's just like a few words right there. So what exactly is going on? Well, you see that guy? He's chasing the other guy around a little square. Horrible yeah, idea, that's isn't it? it? Yeah, that's and, and particularly his use of round rather than around. As an American, yeah. I'd probably say chased around. It's, a, it's oh, yeah. a little bit of a nice Britishism. Imagine being chased around a little square. <laughs> Yes, that's right. And then if you imagine it in a in a in a British accent as well, just the right. little square sounds so much nicer. He's got that nice deep voice too. I can hear the whole thing in Matt's voice. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, while we're sort of on the talk of, of bets and whatnot, there was lots of talk between us of various upset possibilities this weekend. But it turned out the only upset came in a fight where neither of us saw it coming. We didn't even bother to talk about this <laughs> right. on the Money punch. Um, you said last week, Eric, that you thought Jeremiah Nakatila appeared to be a get-well opponent for former 130-pound title holder Miguel Burchelt, following his loss 13 months ago to Oscar Valdez. And uh, there was no counterpoint for me when you said that. But <laughs> as it turned out, Nakatila, about a plus 400 underdog, took the fight to Burchelt, dropped him in round three with a jab, sent his mouthpiece flying in the sixth. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen a situation where a fighter on getting his mouthpiece knocked out just walks away and points at it and says, <laughs> right. ah, it's over there. I'm not fighting until he put it back in my <laughs> yep. mouth. Um, and after that round, uh, Bachelt's corner waved it off with Nakatila uh, leading 60 to 53 on all three scorecards. Nakatila improves to 23 and two with 19 KOs. Bachelt is now 38, three, 34 KOs. Eric, in your eyes, was this more about Valdez taking a lot out of Bachelt? And maybe Bachelt not having the same advantages at 135 pounds that he had at 130. Was Nakatila just better than we were giving him credit for? Hmm. Um, tough to say which it was about more. It was a, a pretty even mix, I think. But I will say that relative to the post-fight talk, it was more about Nakatila than I think people are giving it credit for. Uh, the talk during and after the fight seemed to be all about Burchelt is washed, or Valdez took his soul, or he's no good at 135, etc. And I think that sells Nakatila very short. 
Um, he was jabbing up a storm, launching heavy right hands behind the jab, seemed totally confident. And I guess I sold him pretty short coming in. Um, yeah. As I said last week, he was 22-0 and in Namibia and 0-2 elsewhere. And the opponents he beat in Namibia were all no-names. Usually that pattern means a fighter doesn't belong on the world stage. But in retrospect, a majority decision loss in Russia to an unbeaten Russian, Evgeny Chuprakov, and a shutout loss to Shakur Stevenson, those are both forgivable in their own way. Yeah. I now recognize that Nakatila is solid, and yeah, Burchelt's punched resistance seems diminished. But otherwise, I mean, he looked okay the first round or two. He looked like himself. He just didn't react so well once yeah. he started getting hit flush. So... Yeah, this result comes from a mix of one guy being worse than expected and the other being better, but Nakatila, I think, deserves more credit than he's getting. Um, also, I'll note round five was an early round of the year contender, both guys landing bombs in those three minutes, kind of a last stand for Burchelt. Um, and one interesting thing to think about, Shakur Stevenson was already the favorite for his upcoming fight yeah. with Oscar Valdez. I wonder if he becomes a little more of a favorite after this. Yeah. A guy that he just dominated the hell out of, 120 to 107 on all cards, just wiped out the guy who is Valdez's signature win. Maybe that signature win is a little less meaningful than we thought. Maybe Shakur is a really safe bet to win yeah. that fight. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You know, styles make fights and all, but something to think about. Maybe this isn't going to be so competitive. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One guy who really felt, seemed to feel that, a lot of this was on Burchell and Burchell not being what he was. It's our buddy Breadman Edwards, mm -hmm. um, who tweeted that he had a fighter who he had really wanted to put in with Burchell. Like mm -hmm. He was desperately trying to get in there. I mean, he called uh, a weight bully, basically. I think the argument being that really Burchell was big for 130 all the time and that that was a big advantage to him on, on fight nights. Um, and he wrote, weight bullies who get stopped, the move up are never the same. Hmm. Making weight all that time zaps them. Then when they move up, the physicality is gone. So I, I don't know how much of that uh, is a factor, and that could right. certainly play into his pence resistance not being the same. And if that's true, that suggests, you know, Burchell said afterwards, I'll come back, I'll learn from this, you know, I'll be back stronger. It does kind of suggest, you know, you know maybe he wants to think again about that because it can happen, right? You, 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 you weaken your body, you put yourself to that, and then you get zapped and... And then, well, there you go. So I don't know. But I liked the way that Nakatila fought on, on Saturday night. Mm. He used his advantages. He used his length. Um, this was a guy who went in there. He was feeling it from the beginning, wasn't yes. he? He, was, he wasn't going in there to, to make up the number. He knew, he knew he could go in and win that. And yeah, I'm sure maybe he caught Bachelt at just the right time. But it's a very impressive performance from him. All right. Uh, some lively conversation there from a pretty busy weekend of boxing with some interesting fights to discuss. Let's move along. Ladies and gentlemen, we have us a brand new recurring segment on the podcast. Um, it won't be every episode, maybe more like once a month or so. We'll play this little game. We're calling it Make the Match. Uh, one of us podcast hosts names a fighter. The other host plays matchmaker for that fighter. And it's kind of a two-part question. If you were the matchmaker looking to make the fight that's in the best interest of this boxer at this stage of his or her career, who would you pair him or her with? And just as a fan and media member, what's your dream fight right now for this boxer? It might turn out on occasion that the two questions have the same answer. Like, if I asked you any time between about 2010 and 2015 to make a match for Floyd Mayweather, as both a fan <laughs> and as his matchmaker trying to make him 
big money in a winnable fight, I presume your answer would have been Manny Pacquiao under all parameters. Um, so that's what we're looking at here for this inaugural edition. I'm choosing a boxer and Kieran is making the match. And we'll note that unlike our top five lists, which we get a week to prepare, I'm dropping this name on Kieran without warning. He's processing it on the spot, so we'll get a peek into his thought process as he considers the options and hopefully within a couple of minutes comes up with the matches or maybe just singular match that he would make. Are you ready for your boxer, Kieran? I am indeed, sir. All right. I'm going to give you a top young fighter coming off his first defeat. He was most recently seen in the 122-pound division, but you might choose to make him a fight at 126, or maybe not. Maybe you'll keep him at 122. Your fighter is Brandon the Heartbreaker Figueroa. Ah, Kieran, okay. make the match. All right. So, interesting. So, yes, coming off his first career defeat, but in a fight in which he did very well. Mm -hmm. um, a, a really excellent fight. Um, but nonetheless, you know, on the one hand... Probably the fight that both he has he given any indication? But you you mentioned about like it could be 122, 126. Right. Has he given a firm indication I as feel, to which he's going to be? I feel like the people around him have sort of suggested he shouldn't be trying to make 122 anymore. I'm not sure if he okay. has said definitively. I wonder if he's possibly holding out to see if he can get a rematch with uh, Stephen Fulton for revenge and whether right. that would be something that would keep him at 122. As far as I know, he seems to have both options open. Okay. All right. So I think that, so let's consider options in both those divisions. So obviously he's going to want to get back on the winning track. Let's assume it's not the rematch with Fulton because that's almost too easy. Right. So let's, and we, as a, you know, as it is, Fulton's a bit busy anyway. Right. So he has plans. Yeah. Um, so, Let's look at it. So he lost, but he didn't lose badly. He argues that he won. So he's probably not going to want to waste much time on bottom feeders. He's going to want to get right back in with a ranked opponent. So this, I think, could be one of those instances where what's good for Brandon Figueroa and good for the fans might might overlap here somewhat. Okay. Um, so... You know the name that comes to mind, and I, I'll tell you now, as we've talked about this, I've pulled up the, the uh, Transnational Boxing Ratings Board uh, rankings for um, both 122 and 126 okay. here. You know what would be interesting? It would be a damn tough fight, but it would be a great comeback if he wanted to jump up to 126, a winnable fight, and it could make him a lot of money. He might have to travel for it. How about a gentleman we saw ringside on Saturday night? How about Lee Woods? Mm, okay. That's winnable for him, mm -hmm. I think. I yeah. think he has the skills, the size, the ability. We know he has the toughness. We know we certainly know that that Woods gonna has the toughness. I wonder I think that might be that's an interesting fight for him. That maybe it's a little bit too much for a first comeback. Um, from your first defeat, but that could be a really interesting 126 pound fight. Oh, maybe a, a Mark Magsayo as well as another possibility, because that might set up some real possibilities. If you beat Magsayo and then you, you maybe got Gary Russell Jr. coming, looking for some kind of revenge, that could set up an interesting fight there. But yeah, let's go with Lee Wood, but let's also hedge our bets and say maybe he stays at 122 a little bit longer and who have we got at 122 who might be interesting? You know what? 
Let's have a, uh, a, a battle between people who lost their O to Stephen Fulton. How mm. about Angelo Leo? Okay. Yeah, so I, so it sounds like for both of these, these are kind of coming from the you're you're his matchmaker trying to make the best fight for him perspective. I don't know if they're sort but of overlap. But they're also good fights. Though, right. Like, so is is one of these you're you're the you're the fan. Give me what you know. You can see Figueroa in any fight, whether it's good for him or not. I'm just looking out for what's good gotcha. for you. Uh, what's your number one dream fight for him right now? If is it is it then one it of one of these two? Then it would be the rematch, probably. Ah, okay. Rematch. Just purely as a fan, I think it's the Fulton rematch. Or somebody like Anak Madaliev, if he stays at 122. I wouldn't want to throw him right back in there right now or with, with him. Or, you know, still Lee Wood would be pretty damn good as a fan, too, <laughs> yeah. actually. It's pretty hard to get do better than that. Yeah, let's stay with Lee Wood at 126. How okay. about that? What do you think of those two options? I think those are all very good. You didn't name, though, the one fighter that would probably be my personal dream fight. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the fight I would make for Figueroa as his matchmaker, but as a fan, Brandon Figueroa and Emmanuel Navarrete gets yeah, me just so giddy thinking about the, the punches flying in that one. That might be yeah. my just, like, amazing action fight, dream fight, I'm not sure who's going to win kind of uh, affair. But all the ones that you named certainly would make a lot of sense for a next step in his career. Yep, yep, Navarrete would be fun. Yeah, so we're going to do this segment periodically yeah um just just as the opportunity presents itself that's kind of fun i actually like the fact that you just we're going to just drop these on each other rather than give each other time to think about that so right yes. yeah that's much more fun all right uh time for the news and we took a couple of weeks off from having ukraine related topics in our main event but it's unavoidable this week uh far and away the biggest outside the ring stories this week involve the two Ukrainian boxes found on most pound for pound lists for Silly Lomachenko and Alexander Usyk. Uh, they've made divergent decisions about their immediate futures. Lomachenko had all but agreed to a deal in February to face uh, George Cambosis in Australia. Uh, but Loma's been in Ukraine working the security detail on the border, and he's decided to stay in his homeland for now rather than sign for the fight and head off to train. As a result, uh, Cambosis' people have now turned back to Devin Haney, and multiple reports on Sunday have stated that that fight is now all but confirmed for early June uh, in Australia. Um, heavyweight belt holder Usyk is going in the other direction. Uh, ESPN's Mike Carpenter reported that Usyk, who has been serving in a territorial defense battalion, plans to cross from Ukraine into Poland to train for a rematch with Anthony Joshua, which is expected to take place over the summer. Eric. Thoughts on the decisions these men have made and on a summer boxing slate that will likely include Usyk Joshua 2 and Cambosis Haney. Look, there there are no right or wrong answers here. I think these boxers have to make individual choices about what's right for them. Um, I wouldn't shame Usyk for leaving Ukraine to train, certainly. I've seen some suggest that by fighting AJ, he brings awareness to the atrocities in Ukraine. And... I guess so, but I would also think that awareness is already pretty high. Mm. Um, Maybe it makes a bit of a statement about life goes on. You know, to Mm. to use a 9-11 cliche, if he doesn't box AJ, then the terrorists have won, that sort of thing. Um, So I could see the case from that perspective. I could see the case that these fighters have more value fighting in the ring than being just one more soldier among thousands on border detail at home. Uh, But each boxer has to make his own choice. I respect the choices of both men and I am ready to rain holy hell upon the first a-hole on Twitter who says Lomachenko is ducking Cambosos. Because you know that hot take oh, is yeah. coming if it isn't out yeah. there already. Yeah. Um, as a boxing fan, I'm definitely glad Usyk Joshua 2 is happening. Let's get that done and move a step closer to the winner facing Fury for all the marbles if he beats Dillian White. 
and Cambosa's Haney is excellent. It's a toss-up. Yeah. It's it's no better or worse, in my view, than Cambosa's Lomachenko. I'm, I'm thrilled with either fight. Yeah, you know, when we discussed this a few weeks ago, we did wonder exactly, you know, that point that you just alluded to, whether officials in Ukraine would end up figuring it was more to their advantage to have one or more of these guys in public, you know, flying the flag and representing mm-hmm. the country, rather than, like you said, being, you know, one of, of many bodies. Um, I don't know if you saw this. Our friend Gareth Davis uh, spoke with the Klitschko brothers. He had a piece in, mm-hmm. in the Telegraph uh, today, Sunday, as we're recording this. Um, and among other things, he asked them about this. They were both supportive of Usyk's decision for, for the, that very reason. Uh, a very important message could be carried through an event like this, said Vitaly and Vladimir uh, exactly what you talked about, raised the, the notion of to have the Ukrainian flag raised and our anthem played hmm. and one of our ambassadors of our country out there in the world. And it got me thinking, right? So if the fight's in the UK, which I assume is the most likely right. destination, it'd be interesting because I don't know if AJ's going to get that massive a hometown boost. Because first of all, when you're exposed, to, once you've been exposed to Alexander Usyk, you like him. He's just an amazingly disarming guy in that slightly lunatic way of his. And, <laughs> slightly. And, you know, <laughs> right. And, um, you know, and, and probably, you know, a lot of British fans wouldn't have seen him in person before and would have an appreciation for him and who he is now. And then who the hell's going to boo a Ukrainian? Right. <laughs> right. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective on where, where the crowd's loyalties are going to lie and how they're going to react to both guys if that does take place in the UK. Um, all right, here's what's on our news undercard this week. Uh, first, a couple of injury-related items. Heavyweight prospect Jared Anderson suffered a broken finger in training and is off the Tyson Fury Dillian White undercard. And former lightweight champ Teofimo Lopez, who had undergone surgery on his left elbow in February now had surgery on his right hand Thursday, and according to manager David McWater, is planning to return to the ring over the summer up at 140 pounds. Uh, Talks are reportedly underway for a crossroads clash this summer between Jaime Munguia and Daniel Jacobs, and two fights have been announced for the Canelo-Bivol undercard, uh, Montana Love versus Gabriel Valenzuela at 140 pounds, and a heavyweight fight between unbeatens Philip Ergovich and Zhang Zilei. Uh, Don King won a purse bid Monday for a fight between Trevor Bryan, who holds some secondary version of some (laughs) heavyweight alphabet belt that you definitely shouldn't care about, and Daniel Dubois. Although trouble followed when King said he's planning to go to court over the purse bid split, which he feels should be 75-25 for his fighter, the quote-unquote champion, Bryan, and is instead 55-45. And lastly, uh, you brought this to my attention, Kieran. Mike Tyson was at a comedy show in L.A. last week, and someone in attendance pulled a gun, and Mike remained remarkably calm as the situation was defused and the man with the gun was removed. What would you like to comment on here? Uh, So obviously our news undercard fails into significance compared to the main event, Um, but a couple of items do stand out here. Uh, I like Mungia Jacobs as a fight, Um, and not long ago I would have reasonably comfortably picked Daniel Jacobs to take Munguia to school. But as we talked about in the aftermath of the John Ryder fight, whether or not he actually, you know, deserved to lose that fight, he does appear to have lost at least a half a step uh, over the last year or so. Um, I'm not sure, does he still have what it takes to outwork Munguia? He is by far and away 
the most experienced, most skillful, most talented opponent that Munguia has has yet faced, if that does happen. But um, yeah, that's a tough one for him, and and that's a must win almost for Daniel Jacobs yeah. if that does does happen. Um, very happy to see Montana Love back in a decent but winnable fight for him on a major platform. He made the most of his opportunity. Uh, on a Jake Paul undercard last year, of course, and uh, made us look uh, much smarter than those barstool fools. <laughs> yes. um, so we appreciate him for that. Um, Teofimo Lopez sounds like he just needs to rest up a little bit. Uh, I totally get that he wants to get back in the ring and get things going again, but, you know, a couple surgeries in a row here, you know, you almost wonder if he'd be advised to, to slow things down a little bit. Festina yeah. lente is the Roman's used to say you know more haste less speed um he's he's got that health to take care of uh he still really needs to sort out his whole corner and training situation i think um obviously he knows his situation far better than i do but this does feel like a situation where yeah it's just you've been a busy you've you've fought a lot let's let's pump the brakes get yourself nice and fit get everything sorted out and then come back as strong as you can possibly be um the fun item out of all of this, and it's fun because absolutely no harm came of it, is that Tyson situation. So from what I read, uh, apparently the gentleman concerned approached Tyson and wanted to fight him to prove himself because, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Mike, to his credit, refused. Um, guy pulls a gun, somehow is persuaded to put it away, and at which point Mike embraces the guy. And the guy leaves, and there was no police report filed or, or no charges filed or anything. Um, obviously, I have no idea exactly what happened, but if it's even sort of like that, huge credit to Mike Tyson for apparently diffusing the situation and not rising to the bait. We were saying last week how we could have never imagined that the denouement of the bite fight would be Tyson selling cannabis Holyfield <laughs> right. ears tw uh, 25 years ago. It would be hard to imagine Mike Tyson being the calm person in, in a confrontation. Um, it does seem to suggest a very great deal. Like he's This is a man who's been working on himself a lot. And it's a great effect by the signs of it. So uh, maybe there's more to this story. But really, it sounds like Mike deserves a lot of credit. So good for him there. Yeah. And of course, I also have to take a guess that he may have consumed a few mics and, and was yes. was that much more chill and thus yes. uh, just proves proves the value of uh, said prep, Absolutely. perhaps. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's uh, finish the show with this week's top five list. Last week, Kieran, uh, inspired by all the 154-pound fights on the Showtime 2022 schedule, you tasked me with ranking the five greatest fights ever in that division, uh, junior middleweight, super welterweight, light middleweight, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, I have to say, this was kind of tough. There weren't as many obvious choices as I originally thought there might yeah. be. It took some digging to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And here's a fun fact, uh, or not so fun fact, when you're the guy assigned to compile this <laughs> list. Uh, never in its 60-year history has this division produced the Ring Magazine Fight of the Year. Um it did produce a BWAA fight of the year once recently, uh, and we will get to that. Uh, right. But no ring fights of the year, no fights in the greatest fight of all time discussion. This was kind of challenging, but uh, I did some research, uh, spent some time on YouTube, and here's what I came up with. At number five, this was difficult. I was torn between five possible choices for this fifth spot, 
all around the same level of thrillingness. Uh, you'll find out the other four when we do honorable mentions. But I've decided to put it number five, in part because I want to make sure this era is represented, in part because of the elite skill on display. We go to July 18th, 1987, Mike McCallum, KO5, Donald Curry, in a meeting of two future Hall of Famers, even if one of them is among the more borderline Hall of Famers, but let's not nitpick. Um, outstanding talent on display, fast-paced action, almost all in the center of the ring, two great boxer punchers circling and firing. Curry is ahead on all three scorecards through four rounds, although many people feel it was more like a dead-even kind of fight. But then in the fifth round of a scheduled 15 from out of nowhere, Curry makes a mistake, steps straight back with his hands down, and McCollum delivers an instant classic knockout with a left hook. Again, I won't argue with anyone who puts this a little lower, just outside the top five, even toward the bottom of the top ten. But thanks to the caliber of the two fighters here and what a very, very good, if not quite great, fight it was, this is my pick for number five. Yeah, that's a great one. And it was the fight that really, I think, sort of put a stop, really, to, to Don Curry's career at the very, very top. He'd been mm-hmm. such an exceptional welterweight. Then, of course, uh, Lloyd Hunnigan had just yep. worn him down. He'd moved up to 54, was was really, again, looking very solid. Looked as if maybe the Hunnigan fight was an aberration, the result maybe of him struggling to make way. And Lord have mercy, this was a left hook of absolute beauty. I mean, yeah. it's probably Mike, in a fantastic career, probably Mike McCallum's signature punch, mm-hmm. um, which is really saying something. And, and Curry just never quite got it back up to the top level uh, uh after that really uh, this this really was the one that kind of uh you know sent him slowly sliding down down the slope a little bit uh, yeah. yeah really really good choice okay uh number four uh someone tweeted at me this week upon hearing your assignment that this next fight has to be on the list or else this person would be directing a strongly worded <laughs> tweet to steven espinoza and i've decided this isn't worth losing the gig over so i'm succumbing to pressure at number four uh, April 29th, 1995, in Landover, Maryland, yep. Showtime Televising, and a fella named Mike Tyson on color commentary, yep. Vincent Petway, KO6, Simon Brown, arguably a top 10 knockout in boxing history, yep. and one heck of a fight leading up to that point. Here's the thing. The fight is not available in its entirety on YouTube, only highlights. Now, I've seen it before. But I couldn't rewatch it start to finish to determine its place on this list with total accuracy. Mm. So maybe it deserves to be higher than this. Maybe not. I'm putting it at four. Brown dropped Petway hard in the opening round. Petway responded and dropped Brown just as hard in round three. Through five, the cards are split. And then Petway scores the stunning KO that we all remember for how Brown kept fighting on autopilot while unconscious, throwing air punches while flat on his back. An indelible image. A stunning ending to an outstanding fight that somebody really needs to upload in full to YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll make a confession. Uh, I did not expect this to be such a difficult assignment. And until, <laughs> you know, even though, you know, we give each other the assignments, we we each of us, even as we give them the assignments, we, we try to find it our our own list somewhat mm-hmm. so that we can at least converse on, on the, right. on the matter. And, and when I found how hard it was, I, I kind of stopped. Um, <laughs> but, but this one was very much, and I also wanted to, to, to find this whole fight because the thing that I remember, I watched it live and uh, on Showtime and 
obviously I remember the knockout. I had actually forgotten that it was actually a really good fight up until that spectacular knockout. Mm. And again, it was frustrating not being able to see it all because I was reading accounts about what a great fight it was. Uh, so it's absolutely on my list as well. It, it kind of deserves to be on it, if only for the way it ended. Um, but yeah, it was, this, was a, this was a bit of a, a, bit of a slobber knocker. So yeah, sure this was. definitely deserves to be on there. Okay. Um, are you ready for a deep cut at number three, Karen? Okay. If you if you curtailed your research at a certain point, you might not have gotten to this one. But uh, okay. we're going deep. Uh, prior to my birth, uh, but not prior to yours, old man. Uh, okay. <laughs> June 4th, 1974 at Nihon University Auditorium in Japan, Uvalde, Texas's Oscar Shotgun Alvarado dethroning Koichi Wajima by 15th round KO in just a tremendous brutal fight if you've never seen it and i'm sure many listeners have never even heard of it uh the whole thing is there on youtube take 45 minutes sit back soak it in although i should issue an extreme short shorts warning with regard to alborado <laughs> uh, men men should not wear shorts that short in my opinion uh anyway uh non-stop action the cards were split through 14 rounds by the end of the 14th wajima was badly swollen around both eyes and steamed to have nothing left his corner could rightly have pulled an Eddie Futch and not sent him out for the 15th, but they did. Alvarado floored him. Wajima, all heart, willed himself up. The ref should have stopped it. He didn't. And remember, this is sadist Raskin talking. Even I think it should have been stopped. Alvarado dropped him a second time and then a third time. And finally, the fight was halted with about half a round to go. A brutal ending to a sensational blood-curdling fight. Um, and I'll mention the postscript. It looked like Wajima took the kind of punishment that you never recover from, but he actually came right back and beat Alvarado by 15-round unanimous decision in the rematch. I would not have come within a thousand miles of this. <laughs> now, was this a fight? Because I'll be honest with you, it's just not a fight that would have ever been on my radar. Right. Was this a fight of which you were already aware? Yes. Um, it was, okay. Yeah, yes, but... It was a fight I was aware of, but hadn't really thought about in a while. And it was while scrolling through the names of everyone who had held a title, uh, going through the lineage at 154 okay. pounds, that I came across these names. I was like, oh, wait, I feel like I remember. I, I think it was, it must have been in my days editing for Ring that right. someone wrote about this fight as one of the greatest fights they'd ever seen or something like that. And so the name stuck in my mind when I saw them. I was like, oh, yeah, let me look into that. And uh, did a you know did a little Google search on their names, saw some people calling it a classic, looked on YouTube, and uh, indeed classic. Nice gold star. <laughs> there we go. All right. Um, at number two, uh, it was not the Ring Magazine fight of the year in 2018, but it was the BWAA fight of the year as well as Dan Rayfield's fight of the year on ESPN.com on Showtime, April 7th, 2018. Who'd have thunk at the time that yeah. Eris Landy Lara would yeah. ever be in a fight of the year type fight? But there he was, losing by split decision to Jarrett Hurd in an all-action 12-round slugfest. In case you're curious, uh, the ring went with Canelo Triple G2, which I don't mm -hmm. disagree with. Strong case for either fight. Um, anyway, unlike Alvarado Wajima, presumably our listeners are well familiar with this one, we expected it to be more boxer versus slugger. But whether because Hurd made him slug or because he chose to, I'm not sure what the reason was, but Lara stood and traded all night, and it was razor close heading into the 12th. But in that final round, Lara unraveled just a bit. He got cut on his eye. 
Then Hurd dropped him dramatically, and that made all the difference on the cards. All of them were 114, 113, two of them for Hurd, one for Lara. Hurd doesn't win without that knockdown, a perfect ending to a surprisingly great fight. In my view, the second best ever in the weight class. Yeah, great call, and, and obviously it's on my list too. Uh, terrific fight. Uh, like you said, all the more terrific for it being completely unexpected. There's nothing like Cubans who just don't quite have it in their, their legs to move anymore and mm. actually have to dig into the canvas and fight. It's interesting. I, I'll be curious how, I mean, as a quality of a fight, it will hold up because it was just absolutely terrific. I, it's one of those that I, I think maybe because, you know, Lara was already at the end of his career and Jarrett Hur perhaps hasn't gone on to great success the way we expected him to. Mm. Um, that I wonder if this is going to be one of those fights that's going to become a forgotten classic quite soon. Right. You know, I mean, it's only four years ago, and I wonder how many people would automatically bring it up when thinking about fights. Um, it, you know, it took me a few moments before I thought, oh, God, yes, how can right. I forget that? Um, which is a shame, really, because, you know, based on that, I think a lot of us thought that Jarrett Hurd in particular was going to go on and do some really good things at 154. But um, an absolute classic fight and uh, that took a lot out of both guys. Terrific quality boxing match. Yeah, that's a great observation about how it may not be remembered. It's, you know, kind of interesting that I put it on the list right after Alvarado Wajima, which I'm sure people at the time yeah. in the mid 70s were saying this is one of the all time great fights. But neither guy went on to the hall of fame or anything like that. So 40 something years later, you have to dig around a little to be reminded of it. And uh, yeah, Lara Hurd could kind of fall into that category. Cause I don't think either fighter is headed for the hall of fame or anything right. on that level. Right. So, all right. Topping the list. Uh, this is the one I referenced last week when I said one fight that I was at in person came immediately to mind. It was not the fight of the year, but many years it would have been. It just had the misfortune of needing to exceed Barrera Morales 1 to <laughs> earn that honor. I am, of course, talking about December 2nd, 2000 at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas for all the marbles at 154. A battle of unbeatens, Felix Trinidad, KO12, Fernando Vargas. It was nearly over in round one as a left hook cracked Vargas on the chin. He went down for the first time in his career then went down again later in the round, barely survived the round. Trinidad was jumping up on the ropes, thinking it was over. Yes. Uh, but Vargas slowly got his legs under him, made it through a wobbly round two, started coming back in round three, and then knocked Trinidad down in round four, and suddenly it was a fight. Although Tito responded with an intentional low blow that evened up the scorecards and bought him some time. Uh, back and forth, they battled the next several rounds, Trinidad getting slightly the better of most of it, Though Vargas had a strong 11th round and hurt Trinidad a bit and seemed still in the fight entering the final round, but it was all Tito in round 12. Three knockdowns in a span of 40 seconds, Trinidad by KO at 133 of the final round. Vargas never quite the same, and it was yeah. the crowning victory of Tito's Hall of Fame career. For me, not a difficult choice at all to say this was the best fight, combining the thrills, the quality of the fighters, and the significance of the moment. This was the best fight in junior middleweight history. Yeah, first of all, I hadn't realized you were at ringside for that. Um, that must have been, I suspect the atmosphere there was, was pretty amazing, oh, yeah. actually. It was a wild one, yep. yeah. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can believe it. And it was interesting when I, it was obviously the first the first fight that I, that I put down. Um, and it was interesting when I, 
until I gave up doing research on this because it was hard, um, <laughs> I came across something where somebody had written, oh, if only Felix Trinidad had spent longer at 154. Like if ever there was a man who was meant for 154, it was Felix Trinidad. Because yeah. it was really a relatively short spell between his welterweight days and then moving up to middleweight for the tournament. And, and it's hard to disagree. Um, he... Fernando Vargas was never quite the same after this. David Reed was certainly never the same mm -hmm. after after fighting Felix Trinidad. Um, the, he was an absolute destroyer uh, at around this time, Tito. This this was him at his absolute peak. Uh, Vargas gave everything, just didn't quite have enough. What a fantastic fight it was. Um, I remember watching it on, I think it was pay-per-view yeah, um, from, from my cabin in Alaska and uh, thinking it was a terrific fight. Yeah, absolutely number one. It's hard to think of any that could really challenge it this was yeah a magnificent performance by both men we'll see if you uh have any second thoughts once you get around to watching alborado wedgie well uh, indeed <laughs> but no i i do having watched that and then uh, rewatched the highlights of this one and remembering this one quite well from being there and all and seeing it several times over the years i do think this is the clear number one um all right let me get to my honorable mentions um first here are the four that i strongly considered for that fifth spot uh, another KO loss for Fernando Vargas, the yeah. one against Oscar De La Hoya. Uh, the 10-round draw in the first fight between Yoshihiro Kamagai and Jesus Soto Carras. Oh, good one. Just fun caveman stuff yeah. there for 10 rounds. Um, J-Rock Williams' upset decision win yep. over Jared Hurd. And I almost went with this one on account of Showtime bias and recency bias, the Charlo Castaño draw last year. Excellent oh, yeah. fight thought about yeah. it for number five um others worth a mention simon brown's upset ko of terry norris um yeah. two tremendous fights involving our pal raul marquez his bloody and controversial win over keith mullings was a great yep. fight and the title loss that soon followed against yuri boy campus also a very entertaining action fight this one not quite a great fight but a very good one with a great ending shane mosley ko 12 ricardo mayorga Ah, uh, yes. Um, from around the same era, a very good but not quite great fight, fought at the very highest level, Floyd Mayweather, W12, Miguel Cotto, a, a thrilling slugfest yes. by Mayweather standards, at least. Um, going back a bit further, uh, Robert Hines' title win over Matthew Hilton, outstanding fight, and one last fight worth mentioning, it only lasted 22 seconds. Perhaps the most memorable showbox fight ever, Saku Powell, KO1 Cornelius Bundridge, with the double knockdown on the first landed punches and then the knockout on the very next punch. Not really worth considering for the top five, but had, However, had to mention uh, it. Uh, no, that's a great list. I, I'm sorry that it was a much harder assignment than I'd anticipated. Oh, I'll but... get my revenge. Don't you worry. <laughs> that's, well, that's why I was thinking I'd just lay the apology on thick <laughs> right now just to see if I could get out of that. But, um, no, you're getting yeah. an assignment all about straw weights, Karen. I was going to say <laughs> pre-1974. <laughs> yes. Uh, but no, a great list. Actually. Thank you. That, 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 uh, yeah, there's a couple there that I had quite forgotten about. But yeah, there you go. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with a full preview of the April 9th Showtime Championship Boxing triple header, headlined by a fight that the oddsmakers say is dead even. Erickson Lubin versus Sebastian Fundora. Plus, we'll also look ahead to the ring returns of Gennady Golovkin and Ryan Garcia. Until then, be safe, be kind, 